0: Well, this morning we continue our series called Conversations with a Happy Heathen. And it's really a conversation between two friends with completely different worldviews. So this morning we get to pick up on that conversation between Pastor Jeff and his friend Anne Marie as Jeff tries to explain a little bit about how he's come to a biblical worldview. I guess the real question is, what is truth? I consider myself a seeker of truth. When I started going to church, I asked a lot of questions. I don't want to believe in something that's not true. I don't care how it makes me feel. God, for me, is not an alternative to a less satisfying worldview. God just makes more logical and rational sense. Also, if I ever say anything that offends you, please let me know. As we continue to talk, that would never be my desire.
1: As for offending me, well, you're talking to someone who went to state school, lived on a farm, gave birth to three kids, and ran the PTA for eight years. Impossible! Huh. I really, really enjoy the conversations we're having, and I hope you are too. Likewise, I hope I don't sound too flip or disrespectful. Perhaps you can use some of this as fodder for an upcoming sermon, Conversations with a Happy Heathen.
0: I love talking about this as well. Great sermon title, by the way. But I don't consider you a heathen, more of a pagan. Just kidding. I think of you as a prodigal taking the long way home. Just keep in mind, I'm known for being relentless when I care about something. And as I write this, I'm looking at one of the smile faces you gave me. You do the math.
1: So you say you're a truth seeker that indeed is the sixty four thousand dollar question by the way that was up to the million dollar question a few months ago but with the economy it's back to sixty four mankind has been asking that same question since the beginning of time itself but what is the criteria for assessing the truth is it empirical that is determining the what how and why of reality with some sort of predictability which approaches the ultimate truth? If so, I would suggest science is the proper tool. If by truth you mean determining the metaphysical nature of life, including its cause and purpose, then perhaps reasoning and semantics are the road to take. My question for you is, as a born-again Christian, haven't you already concluded that God is truth, or at least gives meaning to truth? Is God the spectacles that help you see the truth? At the very least, I see dogma as a limitation to understanding. The dismissal of Darwin's theory being a prime example. I think I'm just too fascinated with the detail and mind-boggling nature of scientific discovery to wear those glasses. Maybe you're right, and I'm just doing everything the hard way, taking the long road home. The existence or non existence of God is a futile discussion. It's a matter of faith, not proof. So, those who seek to prove or disprove based on some scientific calculation, like Dawkins, for example, play a fool's game. God exists because you believe God exists. Period.
0: I just send you a smile face. That should change your mind. It worked for me. And before I begin, let me just say that um, Anne-Marie and I are friends and we agreed uh, to have this discussion. And so I want her to be open. I want her to be honest. I don't want her to hold back. So what she says to me in these conversations as we go out throughout the series is not offensive to me. I mean, I, I, I encourage her to ask the questions and I, I respond the same way to her. I don't hold back on what I'm feeling and, and what I'm thinking. And that way we have a really good, open and honest discussion about these things, conversation as, as we call them. Um, there's also, she asks a lot of questions that I don't always have time enough to answer this morning in the morning here on Sundays. So we will continue to meet on Wednesdays at seven o'clock in the morning for men. It's a men's group. And then on Wednesday night at 6.30, we have an open group for anyone who would like to come if teenagers are welcome as well. We have a really incredible time together. Last Wednesday was amazing. We have probably tripled the size of our group since we started. Um, and we wanna invite you to come. We'll most likely be meeting here in this building because we don't fit any longer in the room that we are, we're presently in. So if you'd like to come, uh, please uh, do that on Wednesday nights. Um, This is an ongoing, too, this, you have to understand, this is an ongoing story. It's not just a series. The discussion I'm having with Anne-Marie is really a story. It's a story of when I was 17 years old and the first time I really went to church and I was there and and to, you know, the the bridge diversion of this is I went to this youth group meeting, uh, went to the top of the steps in this house uh, to make sure that I was, had everyone in front of me, didn't trust anyone, put myself at the top of the stairs. The youth pastor broke out Play-Doh. I was more of a hood. I wasn't going to play with Play-Doh and I wanted to get out of there, but I couldn't because I put myself way on top of the stairs and I didn't want to interrupt everything. Um, so I sat there and with my friend and I made him something very quickly and he made me something very quickly because the youth pastor said, make something for someone that reminds you. So I made him a football. He made me a ball and bat. And as I was thinking about my escape, and how I would just avoid this, uh, this young lady, Anne Marie, and another friend, Patty, came up and handed me, handed us 30 smile faces and said, we are all glad you're here. And it truly impacted my life. Back in 1980, the smile faces were really big. And I sat there and I thought to myself, you know, I, I actually, on the outside, looked like, oh, thank you very much, no big deal. But on the inside, it really started to melt that hard heart that I, that I, that I had. And it was the reason that that gesture was the reason that I came back to church for the second time. And really the reason, one of the reasons I'm standing up here today, it didn't, it didn't help me. It didn't say, I didn't say at that point, I believe in God, but it gave me the opportunity uh, to think about it, to go back to church and to work through that in my own heart, in my own mind. And it brought me to this place. So you fast forward 30 years, about six months ago, I'm sitting at home and I get a Facebook request from my friend, Anne-Marie. Um, a friend request, and I realized that this is the same woman, the same girl uh, back then who gave me these thirty smile faces, and so that is what started the discussion. It was her her heart to reach out to me at that point. but what I found out during that discussion during our, our back and forth early discussions that she is uh, she is i will say a a, a skeptic I used the word skeptic for her. And obviously, I'm a pastor. So, 300 Facebook pages later, um, we're in this, this, this continuing story, uh, this continuing friendship, debating uh, from a skeptic's worldview and also from a Christian worldview. Now, when we, when we think about, when we try to understand the universe and all its, all its complexity, all of its incredible complexity, we ask, all of us ask the question about the meaning of life. What what is the meaning of life? What is this all about? Every person just about on the planet asks that question when you look at the complexity of the universe. The what and how questions can be researched through science. But it's it's the why question that gets at the very heart of humanity. That's what people long for. That's what they want to understand, the why question. The what gives us the stuff of existence, but it's the why. It is the why that gives us a larger understanding of our purpose here. What is my purpose in life? It is the why question that that really gets to the heart of why I'm here. What is my purpose here? What is the meaning of life? And it's only as we come to an understanding of the why of life that the what of life becomes defined or meaningful. You need to ask and answer the why question. That again is at the heart of the human experience. Science has its place in seeking truth, but it falls short in answering the most profound questions in life. So don't get me wrong, I love science. It has its place, but it does fall short when it comes to answering those profound questions. The whys of life, silence the scientific voice and leave the philosophical mind at a loss. They they can answer some of those questions, but those ultimate questions of life, they're left at a loss. Now, before I move on, you need to understand you need to clearly understand that if, if you don't answer the why question, if you, in your own heart and your own mind, don't answer the why question, then seeking knowledge from my perspective and truth becomes a meaningless intellectual exercise. It just becomes a meaningless exercise. You're, you know, you're looking around seeking knowledge and seeking all these things, but that then becomes a meaningless exercise if you don't get to the, if you don't get to the real question of why. Now, I will admit to everyone here... That God is my foundation. Anne-Marie said that, you know, you see, you see truth through the, the spectacles, through those lenses. So I will admit that God, God is my foundation. And some would then say, if that's your foundation, then that limits your ability to seek truth, and it squelches your curiosity. It makes you less curious. I would respond by saying it is really, I would say, without a foundation, it's difficult to build anything, including a worldview. And my belief and understanding that there's a God gives gives purpose to my curiosity. I'm a very curious person. I want to know why. I want to understand the hows and the whats and the whys. And so I'm very curious. And for me, in my experience on this planet, I want to seek out. I enjoy knowing the the complexities of the universe and what's at the bottom of the ocean and all the complexity of humanity. Those Those things really intrigue me. But it's my understanding of God that gives that curiosity purpose, that gives that curiosity meaning. Seeking knowledge and truth have a foundation. They have a reason. It's not just something I do in my own mind. Anne said to me, at the very least, I see dogma holding to biblical truth from her perspective as a limitation to understanding. The dismissal of Darwin's theory is a prime example. Now, before I share my response, you need to understand something. Intellectual discussions do not get to the very heart of the questions and longings that people have about life and about God. The intellectual discussions that we're going through here on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday mornings and on Wednesday nights do not really get to the, to the heart of the longing, the heart and the longing that people have about, about life, about the, the, the questions they have about life and the questions they have about God and, and all the things that they deal with in, in, in all of that experience. Most people, most people ask questions, the, most of the people that you will come into contact with ask questions not, not to debate, but they want to understand. They're not engaging you to get in some incredible philosophical or scientific or theological debate. They are engaging you in a conversation and asking questions because they want to understand why. Why am I going through what I'm going through? Why am I having this experience I need to understand it. These are real questions, people having real experiences and they want to understand why. And you, as a Christian, many times, you they're coming to you because they want to hear your perspective on what they're going through and why they're going through it. It doesn't matter how they ask the question. They could be aggressive and obnoxious and forceful, but behind it all is a sincere person most of the time who is truly trying to understand the whys of life and the whys of what they're experiencing in their home with their children, in their own life, and what they've experienced in the past, and the hurts, and the hang-ups, and all the troubles they've gone through. They want to know. And it is, it is irresponsible of us as Christians not to try to, to give them the best answer we possibly can. We need to do research. We need to study. We need to come to our own understanding of these truths so that we can share these truths with others. Now, I want you to consider which worldview gets to the heart of those longings. Which worldview, a naturalistic worldview or a Christian worldview? Which worldview gets to the heart of, those, of the human experience, the human longings that we have? Because that, because that is at the core of my reply to her. We each have a worldview. We need to understand that. Which worldview gets to the heart of the human longings that we all experience? In my response, I wrote this. Let me try to speak from the heart for, on a few issues. First... You need to understand, Christians don't dismiss Darwin's theory. They just disagree. We as Christians basically disagree with that theory. If Jesus is who he said he was, and if what he said was true, that man is created, that we, people are, we, we as people are created in the image of God, then Darwin cannot be right. If Jesus is telling the truth, if Jesus is speaking the truth, then either Jesus in what he says is true or Darwin's theory is truth. You have to understand, you can't, you can't have both. You can't have both. It's basically the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction says that a truth's opposite cannot also be true. So either you are created in the image of God or you were, you're here by luck by chance, some random chance. God has nothing to do with it in a naturalistic worldview, nothing to do with it. You can't mix your worldviews. They're saying that God has no influence, no part in humanity, in the, in the creation of humanity. So either what Jesus is saying is true, we are creating the image of God, or this theory is true. Because a truth's opposite cannot also be true. His observations, I said to her, are fascinating. And they're truly worthy of discussion. I enjoy getting into discussions about life and, and about, you know, the world and how things come about. And look at the animal species that we have. And, and I, I enjoy those discussions. But at the end of the day, at the, truly at the end of the day, he's mistaken in his final conclusion. Darwin is mistaken in his final conclusion. Now, we need to ask the question, why is this so important? That whole discussion, that you were created in the image of God or that you basically evolved with no help at all. God has nothing to do with naturalistic worldview. There is no God. There is no supernatural, okay? Why is it so important? Because if people people simply evolved, then they have no value outside what others choose to give them. If you evolve, you have no value outside of what others choose to give you or what you choose to conjure up, in Russell's words, in your own delusional mind. You're here by random chance, by what I hear all the time in Discovery Channel, by luck. We, are, we live on the lucky planet, so it's all luck. And if you are here by luck, you may choose in your own mind to give yourself value because it's hard to live in a world where you have absolutely no value. But the reality is, outside of God, human beings have no value in and of themselves. They only have value at which someone else gives them value, chooses to give them value, or what you choose to give yourself. Why is this significant? Why is that important? Well, I want you to think about this. In his book... Uh, The Real Faith of Atheism, Ravi Zacharias, writes this. In his book, Modern Times, the historian Paul Johnson referred to Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini as the devils of the 20th century. Interestingly, Nietzschean dogma influenced each of them. So profound and operative was Nietzsche's philosophy upon Hitler, it provided the conceptual framework for his onslaught to obliterate the weak and inferior of this world. That being done, Hitler would establish the supremacy of the Superman in an unobscured and dominant role. Hitler also personally presented a copy of Nietzsche's work to Mussolini and Stalin. Personally presented Nietzsche's work, an atheistic worldview, to Mussolini and Stalin. Nazi mastermind Adolf Eichmann. His last words were to reject repentance and to deny belief and existence in God. He denied the existence of God. Those were his last words, the mastermind of all this. Hitler had these words inscribed over one of the ovens, the gas ovens in Auschwitz. I want to raise a generation of young people devoid of conscience, imperious, relentless, and cruel. I understand please, I understand these arguments don't prove that evolution or a naturalistic worldview are wrong. All I'm trying to help you understand is that you have to follow your worldview to its logical conclusion. Whatever your worldview is, whatever you choose for your worldview, you need to follow your worldview to its logical conclusion. No God, No human value other than what culture or you decide to put on yourself. No God, no human value, and with it, the consequences. You have to live out the consequences of your worldview. And if you eliminate God from the equation, it's very, very difficult intellectually in your mind to come to an understanding that you have any value whatsoever. The best the world can really offer is live and let live unless we change our mind unless we decide this group of people over here has no value or they're inferior in some way. They're weak and inferior. Somehow genetically they're inferior, so therefore live and let live no longer works. It's let's get rid of them all. You know, true atheists, Voltaire and Nietzsche, were very honest and consistent in their worldview. Very honest and consistent. They admitted that without God, everything is without purpose. Everything they said is pointless. It's all pointless. And life itself is ridiculous. The idea that you would walk around thinking that you have some kind of value, that you have purpose in your life, that life has any kind of meaning, is in their words a delusion of your mind. A delusion of your mind. Anything that does not lead you intellectually to a point of despair they say, is a delusional thought of yours. You cannot live in the world of the real world without God. And so therefore you have to delude yourself into thinking or coming up with purpose, meaning, all these types of things. That is a old atheist viewpoint. There's a difference between old atheists and new atheists. An old atheist will basically look at you and say, live or die, commit suicide, keep living. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's no meaning, purpose, value, any of those things to life. If, 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 in Nietzsche's idea, if you give up God, if you give up Christianity, then you give up what goes with Christianity. All the things that come with that worldview, you give those things up. A new atheist, on the other hand, would say, no, 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 there's no God. We don't believe in God, but we still have meaning, value, purpose. I call it, I call it Christmas tree atheism, Christmas tree atheism. Because the reality is, old atheism doesn't really work in the real world, and so you have new atheists who come along and say, yeah, yeah, there's no God, so we get that, we get our cake, and now we want to eat it too. And so, yeah, there is purpose, there is meaning, there is value, all these other things in life. We want that as well. We want both. We want, it, we want to have it all. I think if you put an old atheist and a new atheist in a room together with 15 or 20 other Christians, the old atheist would argue for the Christians for about five minutes and then turn his attention to the new atheist and attack him for the next hour and a half because he would say you've hijacked my worldview man stand up if you're going to say there's no God you're going to hold on to that worldview then stand up and follow the consequences to its logical conclusion I think they would argue more than uh, an old atheist would argue with a Christian if there was the new atheists in the room this is amazing Nietzsche actually predicted that the 20th century would be the bloodiest century in the history of the world How do you think he can make that bold prediction and be right? Because Nietzsche understood intellectually, if you follow a naturalistic worldview to its logical conclusion, that's what you're going to end up with. People have no value. They're not in creating the image of God. They're not image bearers. They're just random mutations. So if, if, Someone comes along like Stalin or Mussolini or Hitler or on and on and on and uh, you have no value Then what's the point? What's the difference if I stick you in a gas chamber and gas you or burn you or or not? He predicted the 20th century would be the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Why? Because he was intelligent enough to follow his worldview to its logical conclusion and he was right on target. My worldview tells me that people are created in the image of God and because they are created in the image of God, God, they deserve my love they deserve my my respect they deserve my compassion they also they also will get my life if that need be i should be willing as a as a as a believer in jesus christ i should be willing to lay down my life for for anyone else for someone else not only should i have respect and love and compassion for them but i should be willing to give my lives for them my life for them weak or strong friend or enemy. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27, it says, but I tell, you that, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That is completely against the natural order of things, so you understand. Be good to your enemies. I mean, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. In, in uh, John chapter 15, verse 13 reminds us, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The Bible tells me in Philippians chapter 2 that I should consider others better than myself. That I should not only look to my own interests, but also the interests of others. And what's the reason behind that? A Christian worldview. Because Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And I am to be conformed to the image of Christ and Jesus Christ laid down his life for others. And I should lay down my life as well for those if it is my uh, God's will for my life. That is my worldview to think of others better than I think of myself and to think of their interests before I think of my own interests. My friend, listen, your worldview matters. Your worldview Matters. Your worldview matters. It matters. It's, it's how you live your life. It will determine how you interact with other people, the choices or, or the choices that you make or do not make. Your worldview matters. Anne also makes the point that Christians are dogmatic. They're dogmatic, that we push our views on others. And I got to be honest, when she wrote that, I, I really that one really gets to me. That really does. You know, and I'll I'll explain why. Uh, When she wrote that, my response to her was to ask her to please rethink her presupposition or her position on that because uh, it just, to me, it makes no sense in the 21st century. And and this this is why. Darwin's theory is no longer a theory to those who hold it in their worldview. It is an absolute fact. It is the truth. And anyone holds to anything different is basically branded a fool, an idiot, stupid, whatever the case may be, an intellectual moron. Because anyone, anyone with any brains would, would believe this, this point of view, this naturalistic point of view, and anyone without brains obviously believes that there's a God. They, they, it, it is, this is closed. This is no longer an open debate to some in academia and the universities. They don't want to debate it anymore. They don't want to talk about it anymore. It's case closed. I don't want to discuss why a 96-year-old Tyrannosaurus rex fossil was found with soft tissue. I don't want to, well, we'll fit that in somewhere. I don't want to discuss that. There's no longer an open debate or discussion. Now, I I threw that out to Anne-Marie, and she quickly responded, I would love to get into discussion with you. So obviously there are those who will discuss it, but get into the the university world, get into the academic world, and they're they're saying, case closed. No more discussion, no more debate. And I explained to her that her idea of dogma might have worked years and years ago, but the tables have turned. Tables have turned. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Teachers will, are, are no, will no longer uh, speak of, of God. They, they're no longer allowed or they refuse to speak of God or of uh, creation or even intelligent design in the classroom, even if they're asked. A lot of them won't do it because they're afraid of their uh, retribution, the reprisal they'll get from their, their higher-ups. But even if they're asked, they, ask, they still won't, many of them still won't have that discussion in the classroom. In college, in university, it's worse. It is worse. Students are, are regularly in, in intellectually intimidated, okay, to assure conformity to their view. And it's not my, I don't read about this. These are students that come back and talk to me about this. Many of their teachers, most of their teachers will not enter into this type of discussion anymore. They won't debate it. And the student doesn't get into a good discussion where the teacher tries to help them understand why their worldview is wrong or off or whatever the case may be. They're intellectually intimidated in the classroom into conforming. They're ridiculed. In the classroom, they're made to look like fools, so they never ask the question again. They just are silent. And then, year after year after year, you get someone pouring another worldview into their minds without any open discussion or debate about it at all. I said the shoe of dogma is clearly, clearly on the other foot. And the great thing about Anne-Marie, when we discuss these things, we're not, we're not having a confrontation. We're not arguing with each other for no reason. When I lay something out before her that, that, is, that is fair, she just says, you know what, that makes sense. I agree with you. And she agreed with me on this one. She agreed. She said clearly that the shoe of dogma is on the other foot. And she actually sat down and explained that to her children and how before the Scopes trial, blah, 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 and all the way through from her perspective. But she said, you know, that's fair. The shoe of dogma is clearly on the other foot. Now, as for her comment that discussions about God are futile, I couldn't disagree more. I honestly, I could not disagree more with that. Uh, because the, 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 the question of God, the question of God in this world is the most important question ever to be asked or answered. The question of God, is there a God, is not a futile discussion. It is the most important question that anyone can ever ask or answer. Now, I agree. I agree that with her that it comes down to faith. But like I said last week, not a blind faith. No one's asking you to leap off into the darkness. If you don't have something answered, you just, oh, don't worry about it. Don't think about it. There is a God and it doesn't matter what truth is over anywhere else. Just if you can't understand something, it doesn't matter because we're just faithers and we just jump into it and believing anything. But that's not true. That is not true. Faith is not ignorant. Faith is to be sure and confident in what you believe. So, yes, it's, a, it's faith, but it's not a blind leap of faith. And that shouldn't stop a person from searching for truth because the implications of this question ha- have so, so much significance. The, the implications of the God question are so significant. Yes, it is faith. It comes down to faith. But it comes down to faith whether you believe that there's a God or you believe nothing created everything. It is a faith issue. But that doesn't stop people, that shouldn't stop you and I or anybody else from asking the question because the implications are so significant. You know, I guess that's what, why it matters so much to me. Because the reality is, as a Christian, for me, the reality is, this isn't, this isn't for me a philosophical or intellectual uh, experience or, or, you know, conversation. It's, that's not what it's all about. It's 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 not just this philosophical or intellectual discussion that we're having and I'll tell you why because as a pastor, especially as a pastor, I deal with real people Asking real questions and struggling with real emotions, and struggling with real pain every single day. And the people who come to me asking questions aren't trying to get into some philosophical or intellectual debate. They're coming because they're hurting, or they have questions about life, or they have questions about why this or how that, or, and, and they're coming because they want answers to those questions. So for me, it is very difficult to engage people in a, a discussion and leave it at an intellectual or philosophical level. I say all, I've said two or three times in the last two weeks to, to, to people I've been discussing things with on a deeper level, I am not trying to beat you in a conversation. It means nothing to me to win in a conversation. To, I said the, the big word, win. If I win, I win nothing. If I, if I am just attacking someone, or you're not even attacking, but debating someone, and I'm able to win, what have I won? I've won nothing. This is deeper than that. It gets to the very heart of humanity. We need to answer those why questions. That's what really matters. Because I understand that I could, I, could, I could win this intellectual conversation or philosophical conversation or theological conversation with someone here, but then someone over here, maybe more intellectual than I am, comes along and they can beat me in a conversation. doesn't make them right. It didn't make me right when I could beat the other person. I could find Norm Geisler or Robbie Zacharias or J.P. Moreland to argue the person had beat me and they could beat them, and that doesn't make them right either. The question is, what is the truth? What is the truth? And we need to seek the truth and we need to get it out of or get it off of this just intellectual, philosophical, theological, well theological, we can stick with just conversation because people are searching in their heart of hearts for the deepest questions of the universe. And we need to answer as best we can those answers. So that's why it's so important to me when I'm talking with Anne-Marie or anyone else that it doesn't just stay there because people, people want answers, not theories and empty jargon. And in, in my desire to help her understand, and I mean a heartfelt desire because this is one of our more intense conversations that went on and I c- can't get to it all this morning. But as she went through this, one of the questions that she had for me, she said, you know, you know you, you, Christians seem to have these little tidy boxes for everything. People are going through, different, they have questions about this or questions about God. And you, you know, your answer to these questions is, God has a plan. It's just so tidy, she said but it doesn't really do anything for me. And so in response to that, here's what I wrote to her to help her understand what my heart and perspective is. I agree, people need more than God has a plan. And every day I deal with people suffering beyond what many can bear. And I can assure you, the conversation goes far beyond God has a plan. But as I I think about it, he does. Though I do understand your point. I think you've spent too much time with the wrong Christians. Every day I need to answer the questions of the universe. Why is there suffering? Why do babies starve in Africa? Why is there evil? Why did my mom die? Why am I dying? Why am I losing my job? Why can't I overcome this addiction? Why don't my parents, my husband, my wife love me? Where is God? And every day I have to go to the source of my strength, the one who came and walked on this earth, the one who understands our suffering because he has suffered more than anyone else and pray for the right answers. I need answers that will heal, bring peace, bring hope, and bring comfort. This week in our church, a family lost their dad, and another person lost their sister. They're looking for someone to speak to their loss. The question of God is the most significant and worthwhile discussion anyone could have because it has such profound implications. Sometimes, to get the answer to the most difficult questions, we need to search our hearts as well as our heads.
1: Jeff, your writing today has really moved me. Your passion and thoughtfulness is very evident, and you make so many good points. I'm so sorry to hear about the losses that you have had to help people through. I'm thinking of you and your congregation and hoping for peace in your hearts. Maybe I have been hanging around the wrong Christians. Are you in my life to change that? Smiley face.
0: These, my friends, are life-defining questions, and each one of us has to decide what we believe. Every single person here has a worldview, whether you recognize it or not. Whether you do, you have a worldview, and that worldview is going to impact the way you think. It's going to affect every area of your life. Your worldview impacts how you treat others. Your worldview truly impacts those choices, those choices that you make define who you are. So as you, as you think about your worldview, you need to understand that that worldview will impact the choices that you make and how you interact with other people. You know, last week I talked a lot about my past and, and what brought me to this place. And I wanna share a story with you to, to help you understand what I just said about choices and about how you treat other people. And that will depend on your worldview. My grandfather, um, who's now passed away, when I was six or seven years old, my parents were divorced. I said, I told you that last week. Well, my grandfather really liked my father in a lot of ways. And when my parents got divorced, my grandfather was very disappointed. My grandfather was also a heavy drinker and uh, he would take his disappointment out on me. And what he would do is we would get together and he'd come to visit or we go to Florida. And when we get together, he'd say, hey, you want to go fishing? And so I would jump in the car to go fishing, my fishing pole all ready to go, maybe, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. And we wouldn't go fishing. He'd get me in the car and berate me for as long as he could keep me in the car, which was as long as he wanted to because I was stuck in the car and we were driving someplace. And he would attack me. You're just like your father. And he would go down the line to all the things my father ever did and why I'm just like him and all these kinds of things. And so you're sitting there minding your own business, wanting to go fishing with your grandfather, thinking it was going to be a fine day in Florida to go fishing. Instead, you're, you're verbally assaulted for an hour and a half or two hours. And this went on, 9, 10. When you're younger, you just, to, you just have to take it. You can't do much about it. He'd get me, he'd get me alone in a room and just attack me and for what I look like or what I acted like or my intelligence or whatever the case may be. I remember one time when I, was, I got older, we were in New York, and we were in the garage, and he just, again, had too much to drink. He comes into the garage, and I had, I had very long hair back then. It was like 1970s. I had long hair, I had a pair of sweats on and a comb sticking out. I remember this comb you stick in your sweats or whatever, you walk around. Yeah, I know some of you guys remember that. Don't deny it. He launched into me, okay. Um, I, I, I was debating whether I should tell you what he said, but I'm not, I can't because it was so degrading to, not just, it wasn't the language as much as how he was attacking other people and for how they looked. He said, you, you look just like a blank and you're acting just like a blank and it was just this incredible attack upon my character, who I was as a person, how I looked, all about my father, and blah blah. I said two things in that conversation because I was a teenager. I can't remember some of the uh, all I said, but when you're younger, you can't say anything. When you're a teenager, all bets are off. So I said to him, you know, I, I looked at him and I said, and I knew this, I knew he'd love this when I said, you know, my father told me you were just like this. That really got him. Okay, that was number one. And then I, with the long hair, I said, hey, Jesus had long hair. Right. I wasn't a Christian at that point, but I figured I could use Jesus in my defense. He loved me, whatever. I knew that I knew that much. Jesus was a good guy or something. He was a good whatever, you know, and he loved me. So I'll use him in my defense. But here is this man, my entire childhood. okay, from as long as I can remember. And the funny thing about it is I'm not sure if you have grandparents or people like this around you. My grandfather would aggressively just try to destroy me. And then after that, my grandmother would give me five dollars every time. She knew what was going on. She couldn't do anything about it. And so she'd slip, you know, they went through the depression. Five bucks was a lot of money, I guess. And she slipped me $5. And at the very end, when I was a teenager, I said, Grandma, you don't have to give me $5. That, I appreciate that. So here was this person. Now, fast forward, I'm my late 20s. I'm a pastor now, uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. I clearly understand my worldview, conform to the image of Christ as best I can. My father, my grandfather is diagnosed with cancer. And as he goes downhill with this cancer, we fly to Florida and we spend a few days with him. Now, even before this, even before this, I I would show love and compassion to my grandfather as as a believer in Christ. As I got older, I would show him, I would try to have nice conversations with him. I would try to engage him in different ways. Well, here is this man who butchered me all of my life, now laying on his deathbed. And I'm reading him scripture, reading him the word of God, led him to the Lord, he was baptized, I baptized him in his bed. And he would lay there and I can't describe for you the disgusting spit that would come out of his mouth, that would drool out of his mouth or he would cough up. And I had the privilege of wiping the spit off this man's face when he, as he was going through this, this horrendous disease. So I'm sitting there wiping the spit off his face, reading the word of God, showing him love and compassion, nurturing and caring about him. You know why? Because I, I, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I have a specific worldview. His behavior does not define me. His behavior does not define my reaction to him. His behavior doesn't dictate my actions. My worldview does. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. They beat him so you can see his insides. They, they, they stuck a crown of thorns into his, into his skull. They, they whipped him. They ridiculed. They spit on him. They nailed him to a cross, his hands and his feet. They stuck that cross in the ground and made him suffer all that time. And what is his response? Father, forgive them. My worldview tells me that people are created in the image of God. And my response to my grandfather is not based upon the horror that he inflicted upon me all my life. My response to my grandfather is based upon my worldview, that he is created in the image of God, that my goal in life is to conform to the image of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, my example. And I lived out, I lived out my worldview. I lived out being a follower of Jesus Christ. My friends, your worldview matters It matters how you think of yourself, how you think of others, how you make choices, what dictates your actions, how you live your life. Now, in another conversation, Anne-Marie said this.
1: Why does God allow suffering and evil? Well, God has a plan, and we just have to trust him. (laughs) It's the moral equivalent to being shushed. That response does not only not satisfy It actually repels.
0: The funniest thing when she said that, when she wrote that to me, she said, yes, I'm yelling. We were in a conversation. She said, yes, I'm yelling. So I said, "Ah, I made you yell. (laughs) Nothing new for me, making people yell. But we talked about that. That is a good question, is it not? That is a good question. Now, the way she presented it, that's, hey, that's good. I'm glad she's saying that. She said it's the moral equivalent when I'm asking about evil and suffering and people are saying, well, God has a plan. She said that's the moral equivalent of being shushed. And she said it's repelling. It repels me. It doesn't draw me closer. It pulls it pushes me away. It's a good question. It's a question many of you probably have right now. Explain why is there suffering? Why is there evil in the world? Well, I will try my best. I believe that I do. It's a good question from her. It's a good question. From I think I have some good answers. I really do. And I'm hoping that my answers will not make you feel shushed or make you feel like, oh, that, it's, that's insignificant. I don't, that's, that's repulsive. My, I'm hoping my answers will, will satisfy you and bring you hope. So I will tell you what I said in response, uh, to, in, in response to her question. But I'll do that next week. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this time that we can spend together. And thank you, Lord God, for this time that we can be here, that we can open up our minds and we can learn more about you, that we can try to understand this world in which we live. We can solidify our worldview, understand our worldview and how it interacts in every area of our lives, our choices, our, 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 our decisions, our, our, the way we live out our being, our own identity and the identity of others. Father, help us to truly understand that and then to apply that to our, our regular conversations with our friends and our neighbors, those around us, Lord, at work or at school. Allow us to privilege to speak into their hearts, not in a way that in a way that we try to win a conversation or beat them in a debate, but truly we get to the heart of the human question of why. Father, we pray that as we spend this time together on Sunday mornings, and as we come together on Wednesday mornings and Wednesday nights, that you would truly allow us to ask the questions in our, of our, that we have, that we ourselves have, that has been holding us back, Lord, from growing more in love with you and deeper in our relationship with you. And Father, we pray that as we ask those questions, we would also be thinking of those that we can invite here on Sunday mornings. People have questions, people have desires. Lord God, I pray that you would give us someone in our minds right now, put someone in our minds that we could invite, that we would fill this place with seekers and even skeptics who truly want to engage in a conversation that leads to truth, because we ultimately believe, Lord, all truth leads to you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Have a great week.